All right, well, hey, turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. 2 Chronicles 34. When was the last time you were in Chronicles? Not as many hands went up. Okay. Um, question. I got a line of questions for you this morning. I got, I got a, and, and I, I, this is the moment in church where you get to interact. and You get to yell things and proclaim things. First question. What is the most common item you lose in your home or in your life? Phone, yes. Keys, yes. Anybody else? The three-year-old. Yes. Well, they kind of they get lost on their own. They kind of wander off. And Yes. Anybody else? So- Did you say socks? Socks. I always struggle with finding pairs that match, and I've just gotten over that because they work, you know? Unless they have holes in them. Uh, anybody else? Anything else? What else do you lose in your home? Your wall? Yes. That's an important one. In our household, it is the remote control for the television. And we've tried the thing where it's like, well, if we don't find the remote, then we're not watching TV. But then we're like, shoot, we need this remote, like now. And we have a couch that will just swallow the remote whole. It's like an animal that eats remote controls. I swear there are probably five remotes in our couch. And one day I'm going to take it apart and I'm going to find all of them. Another question for you, kind of similar line of thinking. What is something, have you ever lost something that you knew, if I don't find this, I'm in big trouble? I heard somebody say wallet. That's kind of in that realm of thinking. Social security card, yeah. Those are a pain to get a new one. You have to, like, send blood samples in to get a new social security card. Anybody else? Glasses, yes, you need to be able to see. Glasses are vitally important. Anybody else? Car keys, yes, driving is important. Driving is very important. The three-year-old, that is, <laughs> yes. Has anybody ever lost one of these? Yeah, is anybody still looking for one of these? Somebody mentioned a, they lost a diamond. And oh, no, Nick, you lost your wedding ring? Oh, well, guess what? Sorry, I'm pointing to this guy here. Um, actually, one time, there was a time where I lost my wedding ring. I was splitting wood. I know I, I, I look like a burly lumberjack. I'm splitting wood. And uh, I was walking through the snow back into the house after splitting wood. And have you ever had that feeling where you're like, I'm missing something? Something feels weird. You know, sometimes, I think nowadays we feel that when we don't have our phone on us. Or have you ever had the thing where your leg vibrates and you're like, I don't even have a phone on me. Why is my leg vibrating? Um, that's a bad thing when that happens. But the same thing happens when you're not wearing your wedding ring where you go, this, this feels strange. And I look down and I go, oh no. I was just in this, out in the cold, splitting wood. My fingers got cold. I'm, you know, who knows where it flew off. It's obviously somewhere in the yard. I will never find this, probably till spring. I'll have to get a metal detector. And, and I remember admitting to my wife, like, I'm sorry I lost this thing that you gave us as the symbol of our love. It's gone because I needed to split wood. But then across my, uh, the thought in my mind, that was a Really hard thing to say. Um, I had the thought, I was wearing gloves when I was splitting wood. I was wearing gloves. So I run to my gloves, and I turn it over, and voila, out pops my wedding ring. Praise God, because I didn't want my wife to have to buy me a new wedding ring. Um, And I found it. Now, that is something that I really did not want to lose, and I could not afford to lose. Kind of similar line of thinking what is something or some things in the church that we can't afford to lose? 
What are some things that if we lost this in the church, we probably would struggle to say we're a church? What are they? Truth. Yes. What else? I heard a lot of things. Jesus. The Bible. Yes. Anybody else? Faith. Yes. Yeah? You got something? Humanity? Community. I liked humanity. That was cool. But community, yes, we need to be together. Yes, all these things. And there's 25,000 more that we could think of. But one thing I want to focus on today is what if we lost the Bible? Somebody said, Dan, you said the Bible. What if, what if our church lost the Bible? Not, but not just misplaced it because we forgot where we said it. What if we forgot we ever needed it? We just forgot about it. It kind of just became one of those things we tucked in a corner and like, what was that book called again? It, the, the, uh, I think it was called The Bible. Um, I don't remember. Who would we be? What would we do? What would we teach? Probably think of something. I, I want to be honest with you. It's really not that hard to lose the Bible. Even in a church this big with this many Bibles in a room, it is not that hard to lose the Bible. It's not that hard to lose the Bible in a church, and it's not that hard to lose the Bible in our lives. To just do the thing where I'm just going to tune it out for a while. I'm going to kind of do my own thing for a while. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to read it, but you ever done the thing where you just read it and it's, you're clearly in autopilot, you know? But even more than that, churches are infamous for this, watering it down, making it palatable, marrying it with our own ideas, our own values, our own culture. That is really, really easy to do. It's really easy to do. And so we need to understand that since this is so easy to do, we need to prepare ourselves for if we ever begin to do it. Because I'm going to be honest, in the culture that we live, the Bible is something that is definitely not loved. The Bible is not quick, easy, or convenient, and in the world we live, things need to be quick, easy, and convenient to be uh, appreciated or moved towards, and the Bible is none of those things. It's the opposite of those things. It takes time. It takes commitment. It's slow. It's long. It's, you need to understand what you're reading. You need to process what you're reading. You need to toil over and pray over what you're reading. You need to do what you're reading, which is even harder. And so, though the temptation in the world is to move away from the Bible, here at Kent City, we want to say, we want to move toward the Bible. We want to embrace it. We don't want to leave it behind. If we are serious about being disciples of Jesus, we need to believe what he believed, and Jesus believed in the Bible. He taught the Bible. His teachings are actually in the Bible. So in order to guard against falling into the trap of being lukewarm, indifferent, or just forgetting it, we need to learn from a time in the history of Israel where they actually did lose the Bible. And what was sad about that was no one even knew it. They forgot what it was called. They forgot about it. But we're going to also see what happened and what changed when it was finally found, because it eventually was found. 
So like I said, we're going to be in 2 Chronicles 34. We're going to be starting in verse 14, but before we jump in there, I'm going to just give us a little context and a little background for any of us who maybe this is new news for you. And praise God if it is. It's the best news ever. But if you're new to the Bible, where we're going to be today is in a part of the Bible called the Old Testament. And if you go right back to the very beginning in Genesis 1-1, what we find in the beginning is that God created the heavens and the earth. And along with creating the heavens and the earth, he created humanity. That's the word I thought she said, humanity. And after creating humanity and establishing uh, people on earth, eventually he created a nation for himself called Israel. Israel. And God loved Israel. God gave Israel his law his commands, his blessing, his presence, his constant help. But if you read the Old Testament, you're going to see this constant annoying pattern that Israel has this uh, sort of propensity to constantly move away from and forget God. After he does amazing things like parting the Red Sea, they're like, what did he do again? What was Something about the water. I, I can't remember. Anyway, let's go do our own thing. They're constantly moving away from God and going their own way. And one of these pivotal moments happens in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where Israel tells the prophet Samuel to tell God that we want a king so that we can look like the other nations. Because God wasn't a good enough king. Like, no, we need a human. We need, we need, we need a person. We need a person who can sit on that throne that we can see and that we can replace after he dies. And here's what they say. Here's, actually, here's what God said to the people in verse 11 after hearing this request from the people. This is what, oh, I'm sorry, I, I'm not, thank you. Thank you. This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take the best of your fields. He will take a tenth of your grain, a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king. We're cool with him taking all the stuff. We just want a king. Then we will be like all the other nations with the king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Because God, you're not enough. You're not enough. And what followed, because God is always right, and when he says something that's going to happen, it's going to happen. What followed was a slow and steady confirmation of this word as each king of Israel, next to next to next, became worse and worse and worse. Turning their back on the Lord. Turning the temple into a place of worshiping idols. And turning the Bible into a shred of paper. I want to show you a picture real quick. Can we pull up that first picture? This is a really hard question, but what is that? It's not a donut. It is a hurricane. Sorry, I'm hungry, so I'm thinking about donuts. That is a hurricane. Has anybody ever been in a hurricane before? Anybody? Yeah? You've been in a hurricane? Question for you. Have you ever been in that thing in the middle? You know what that's called? Yeah, it's the eye of the hurricane. Now, now I don't know if anybody knows this, but in a hurricane, in the eye of it, That is actually what it looks like. That picture was taken from inside of a hurricane. Now, in the eye of a hurricane, you will actually experience really pleasant weather. You'll see the sunshine. The wind will stop blowing hard. 
It's going to be a pretty, pretty nice day in southern Florida. But on the other side of that eye is more of the same storm damage and destruction. And what actually we're looking at in 2 Chronicles 34 is the eye of the hurricane for the people of Israel. Because everything that preceded it was just this rough patch of damage and destruction and turning their back on God. And everything that comes after it is more of the same. But right here in this moment, we have clarity. We see sunshine. We have calm. We have peace. We have peace. And so this is a moment for them where they're able to see clearly. But for us too, just so you know, anytime you're in the Old Testament, you can know that this is something God is wanting for us to look at and use to prepare ourselves for if we do the same thing. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. Can we pull up that scripture real quick? Now these things occurred talking about the Old Testament, as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. We've been given this very long narrative that is a picture of redemptive history and preparation for us to, to, to see the coming King, Jesus Christ himself, but there are all these lessons and moments and stories that we can use and go, we should be careful not to do the same thing. Because if they lost the Bible, guess what? So can we. So can we. And so our text today starts at the beginning of King Josiah's reign. And Josiah, just so you know, became king as a second grader. Do any of you have second graders who you are ready for them to lead a nation? No? No? No. I don't, yeah, exactly. Well, Josiah was king, and he was, uh, actually, I don't think they had second grade back then, but he was an eight-year-old. He was an eight-year-old. And this boy, not only did he have the fact that he was young working against him, his family heritage he had working against him. Earlier in Chronicles, if you re read back, you'll see that uh, Josiah's main examples for being a man and a king were his evil grandfather, Manasseh, who actually kind of turned things around toward the end, but then his own father, Ammon, who was wicked and evil and awful, and that's who he had as an example. But Josiah, what I love about him is he didn't want any part of this. He didn't want anything to do with what those dudes were about. And what we discover is that even as an eight-year-old, Josiah turns back countless generations of wickedness and evil with his decision not to fall in line with his relatives. And I even think this is something we can take heart in. Because some of us come from families that we know what they are about and what they do and how they are. And we're wondering, are we going to do the same thing? And we can say, Josiah didn't do it. He didn't have to go where they went. He went his own way and went the Lord's way. And we're going to see that. It was Josiah who at the beginning of his reign decided to undo all the evil that his family did by tearing down the idols that they had built up. By taking the temple that had been reduced to ashes and restoring it to its former glory. And it was while he was restoring the temple that they found something. That they, I imagine it's like that scene in Indiana Jones where you know, he finds this amazing treasure and they go, what is this? What is this? And what they found changed everything. So I've been, I've been uh, kind of holding this over here for a while. But now it's time to read 2 Chronicles 34 verse 14. Let's read this together. Or not together. I'll read it and I'll put it on the screen. Sorry, you were all going to read with me, weren't you? All right. 
while they were bringing out the money they had taken into the temple, uh, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Hilkiah said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law of the temple of the Lord. And he gave it to Shaphan. Then Shaphan took the book to the king and reported to him, your officials are doing everything that has been committed to them. They have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the supervisors and workers. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the Lord, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, Ahikam son of Shaphan, Abdon son of Micah, Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's attendant. Go and inquire the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what is written in this book and what has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because those who have gone before us have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. Can I pray real quick? Lord, I pray that we would be just as serious as Josiah when we hold this precious item in our hands and read from it. You're not in the business of making us feel bad, Lord. Thank you that you help us to live life to the fullest, abundantly. And I pray, Lord, that as we listen to your words, that we would take you seriously. And if we need to tear our robes, I pray that we would do that. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So while repairing and restoring the temple, one of the priests found the book of the law. And actually, it was most likely the scroll of Deuteronomy. And he read it in the presence of the king. And when the king, Josiah, heard the words that were on the scroll, it says that he tore his robes. Now, in the culture we, we live in, when somebody starts ripping their clothes off in front of us, generally we run the other way or we call the cops. But back in this time, when somebody tore the robes, this was a sign that what just took place is serious as a heart attack. It's serious. The king has been undone what, by what he just heard because he knows we have neglected something of absolute importance. And he was convicted. His own people, his own family for generations. God's chosen nation, chosen nation, turned its back on God and his word, and this news bothered Josiah. It really bothered him. It cut him deeply. It shocked him. But what I love about Josiah was he didn't just stay stuck in a shock and sulk. He took action. He took action. A lot of times when we get convicted or we realize we're guilty of something, sometimes we just do this thing where we just pout and we feel awful and we feel bad. And actually, what I've noticed about that sort of moment of feeling bad, we're kind of letting ourselves be okay with it because we're not actually planning to do something about it. Right? We're almost kind of wanting to move on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something about myself that you're going to think is kind of weird, but that's okay. Um, for the past four weeks, I have been taking cold showers. 
Now, I don't have time to explain why I take cold showers. If you have 30 minutes that you want to waste with me over lunch, you can take me out to lunch. I will explain to you why I take cold showers, but I want to paint a picture of what it's like to actually take a cold shower. So imagine this. Now, don't imagine it. Don't imagine it. But just hang with me here. You've all taken a shower before. You're in the hot shower. There is a moment in the hot shower when you decide we're going cold, and you switch the handles over, and that moment that the knives and the ice hit you, you have a choice to make. I can get out of this immediately because I have the power to go back to hot and avoid all this pain, or I can stay in this because I believe that it's actually good for me. And I do believe it's good for me. I've actually really enjoyed, I actually like cold showers. I look forward to them now. But there's a moment where you go, I don't want this. This hurts. I want out of this. And this is what happens when we're under conviction. Where we feel something, we go, I don't like it. I want out of it. And I can just do the magic wand thing and move out of it right now because it's easy to just kind of move on with my life. I've, I've been a good person. I work hard, I'm responsible, I'm an adult, whatever your justification is. But it's a whole other thing to say, I'm going to do something about it. I'm staying in this cold shower. Josiah was the sort of guy that would stay in a cold shower. He knew that the stakes were real and serious, and he knew he had to be teachable. Even the king knew he had to be teachable. He had to take ownership of the guilt he now felt. He knew he was standing under the word of God. He knew it. But even he knew that he didn't fully understand what was written on these pages. And so he had to do something about that. So it actually says that Josiah sought someone out who could explain it to him even deeper. So he found a prophetess to help him understand. And let's keep reading about what he learned from this prophetess. Verse 23. Now she said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Tell the man who sent you to me this is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people. Yikes. Okay. All the curses written in the book that have been read in the presence of the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and aroused my anger by all their hands have made, my anger will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke against this place and its people. And because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, I've heard you, declares the Lord. Now I will gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place on those who live here. So they took her answer back to the king. And so this prophetess tells Josiah two things. First, because of Israel's complete disregard for God and his word, there's going to be consequences. All the curses that were written out, all the consequences and the punishment, they will be poured out on Israel. They will reap what they sown, and it will not be good. But the second thing that God wants Josiah to know is that because he was teachable and he was humble and he was contrite, he ripped his clothes and he cried and God saw that humility. He wants to reward it. He wants to honor it. And he tells Josiah, 
you will not see the punishment that's going to come upon these people. You'll be spared. You'll be able to live out your days in peace. You'll die in peace, and it will not touch you. Now, Josiah's thoughts right now could be a couple different things. I think we can all resonate with what Josiah might be experiencing right now. Part, in one way, he might be thinking, okay, makes sense. These people have been awful. I know what my dad was like. He was pretty awful. He was a bad dude. And uh, he had it coming. They have it coming. But at least I'm going to be okay. At least I'm going to be able to live out my life in peace and kind of, you know what, I did the right thing. I should be rewarded. I'm a good guy. Praise God. Or he can take another approach. And he can say, what can I do about it? What can, can anything be done? What can be done? I've been working in church for about 10 years now, and I've noticed, and this isn't, this isn't a hard and fast rule, but I've just noticed there's two types of people that I often encounter in church. There's one type of person that comes and goes, what am I going to get out of coming to this place? You know, they got their laundry list of, all right, we got to make sure the preaching is good and fun and relevant and from the Bible. We got to make sure the worship is really good and that, you know, we don't do the smoke machines, but we like the worship to be, you know, good worship, solid worship, biblical worship. Coffee better be really good. We don't want to pay for our coffee either, which I, I, I found that out the hard way here when I started, like, helping myself to coffee, and they're like, that'll be a dollar. And I'm like, I, uh, I don't have any money. Um, so thank you for whoever's been paying for my, my debt at the coffee bar over there. Um, or, you know, the children, is the children's area, do they have gluten-free snacks in the children's area? Do they, you know, what are they, do we have a wanted? do we have VBS, what do we do? There's people that come to church who go, I'm here to be served. And if you don't have what I need, I will drive up the road to the church up the road that maybe has what I need. But really, I am here to be served. And that's normal. I've gotten used to the fact that some people, and I've even done that before, where I've sat under preaching and I'm going, eh, eh not good. But then there's another posture in church where there's the people that go, I know who I was. I know what God had to do to get me to where I am. Jesus Christ died on a cross to redeem me and save me and give me life. He's filled me with his Holy Spirit. I've been given a gift. I've been purchased at a cost. What can I give? What can I do? I have a gift. I can help. All right, sign me up. Sign me up for everything. Sign me up for anything. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve. Josiah was a here-to-serve dude. He was not shopping for the easy way out. He was saying, God, we got to do something. And I want to tell you, that's a leader. That's a leader. A leader is not worried about his or her own hide. A leader is worried about all the other hides and saying, I, I'll do whatever it takes to bring these people to God. As long as these people have breath in them, no matter what, I've got one job, and it's to bring them to God. And that's exactly what he does. Look at verse 29. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and he went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, all the people from the least to the greatest. 
And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found at the temple of the Lord. The king stood by his pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, and to obey the works, sorry, the words of the covenant written in this book. Then he had everyone in Jerusalem and Benjamin pledge themselves to it. I imagine their hands are on their hearts. And they're pledging themselves. The people of Jerusalem did this in accordance with the covenant of God, the God of their ancestors. And Josiah removed all the detestable idols from the territory belonging to the Israelites. And he had all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. As long as he lived, they did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their ancestors. Do you realize Josiah is actually showing us what to do if we ever lose the word of God. He's giving us a blueprint here. You know, and it seems it, there's like a lot of things about pledging themselves and, you know, doing these kind of, you know, what are they doing? Really what he's showing us is that if we ever lose God's word, we have a responsibility. We have some steps that need to be taken. And the first thing that he shows us on this blueprint is that we need to gather together. Friends, if we ever lose God's word, do me a favor. Somebody call a meeting. Today, if it's already happened, call the meeting. I don't care if you're a pastor or an elder or a deacon. Call a meeting. Gather the people together, and in the presence of all the people, you need to do some work together to assess where you're at. And what they did when they gathered together was the first thing they did was they owned it. They owned it. We've departed from this word. We've moved away from it. We need to own this fact. It's hard to do. It's like staying in a cold shower, but we need to own it. The next thing we need to do is we need to open it because these pages are getting crusty and dusty and we forgot what they say. And as we open it, we're going to read all of it. But guess what? We can't just read it. Reading it doesn't impart power to you. Sometimes we think if we just read God's word, something's going to magically happen. No, the last thing they did that we need to do is you need to obey it. You need to obey it. Josiah owned it, he opened it, and he obeyed it. And honestly, maybe it's never going to be our church. Maybe it's never going to be us. We're, we're led really well, I can say that much. But maybe, just maybe, it's you or your household that needs to own it, open it, and obey it. Josiah was a doer of God's word. He didn't just believe in the benefits that God offered to him. He believed in the ideas that was taught on those pages. And he said, I'm gonna do what it says. No matter how hard it is, I'm gonna do what it says. And here's the question I want to ask you to seriously consider. This isn't guilt, fear, and shame. I know it's January 1, and we're all about starting new trends, you know, new, new patterns, new rhythms, new routines. But seriously, where's the Bible in your life? Have you lost the Bible in your household? Who or what directs your steps? Or your decisions? Is it you? Is it Oprah? Well, 
I don't even know if she's on TV anymore. Fox News? A politician? I want to tell you the most shameful event in my entire life. Because, one, I, I want you to get to know a dude that you hired, because if you decide maybe um, you want to get rid of me, this is the time, right? I'm going to tell you something, and my wife's going, oh, no, I know what he's going to tell. Um, that's okay. Um, but there was a time in my life where I, I'm going to be honest, I, t I totally lost the Bible. And you know what is worse? This was in my second year of ministry. This didn't come up in the interviews, by the way. I'm really glad it didn't, because you, you probably would have voted a different way. Maybe you would have voted a different way. It doesn't matter. But in my second year of ministry, it is possible to teach the Word of God to students and go, it's nowhere near my life. It's not touching me. I'm, not, I'm getting sloppy with it. I'm getting sort of casual with it. And I think even the fact, there's even something about because I teach it, it kind of justifies, you know, I need to spend time with God. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm one of the guys. I'm in. But I was getting, and I knew I was getting sloppy. I knew I was getting casual. I knew I was getting super lukewarm. I was getting angry. It's a weird thing. I don't know why. I was just getting angry. But one day, I was on my way to youth group to lead youth worship at the junior high group. Probably had Christian music playing on the radio, about two miles from the church building. Just driving a beautiful summer day, and all of the sudden, this big, huge, nice Escalade cuts me off. Just cuts me off. And I pull over into the, you know, I'm like in, the, in the, the ditch, basically, and thankfully there was no snow or I would have been stuck in the ditch, but I got out of the ditch, and all I knew was what this person did cannot happen to me because, uh, you know what, I'm me. And I'm not putting up with it any longer. And I'd always had this fantasy of wanting to, like, just throw something at a car just to show them. You don't, you don't mess with people in the road. You know, I think that's called road rage. And so I actually, this car then gets over into the turn lane, and I pull up beside him, and I look down to see what could I possibly throw at this car that just did such a horrible thing. I almost died. That's what I was saying. I almost died. And so I look down, and I see, a, like, a cup like we have in our coffee bar with a lid on it. And I think to myself, well, it's water. I know this is water. And so I take this cup, I roll down my window, and sometimes when I get angry, I have powers. I have really precise aim all of a sudden. So I take the cup that I think is water, and I throw it at the car that I'm pretty sure the window is up in, and I throw it out the window, and that's when I realize, one, the window in the car I'm throwing it at was not up, it was down, because it goes through the window, into the car, hits the dash, explodes everywhere, and you know what? Water is not brown, but this liquid that exploded everywhere was. It wasn't water, it was old coffee from one of those old cappuccino machines from the gas station, and it exploded all over this dude's entire dashboard. So my bad day just all of a sudden got worse because all of a sudden I see this happen, and this car gets behind me and starts chasing me. Right? And I'm driving a 2001 Ford Focus that I'm pretty sure its engine, like, you know, runs on bat guano or something like that. Like, it's like I got a really slow engine. And this Escalade that's, like, souped up on jet fuel is, like, on my tail. And I actually try to lose him because I'm thinking, 
I can't handle this. What just happened is a big deal. I got to get out of here. But he just followed me. I tried to lose him in a neighborhood. I, I, went, I eventually like went into a cul-de-sac, and I wasn't sure what to do. So I actually pulled my car into the middle of a cul-de-sac. I jumped out of my car. The dude jumped out of his car. His face is beat red. He's covered in coffee. And he's screaming at me at the top of his lungs, words that I cannot repeat. And I'm just going, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I don't know what happened. He actually grabs my phone out of my car that the church that I used to work at bought for me. By the way, I didn't stop working there because of this. I just want to inform you about that. Because um, I didn't tell them about this for a few months later. But anyway, that, that, that'll come later. So he grabs my phone and he says, if you messed up my car, I'm going to mess up your phone. And I just yell at the top of my lungs in the middle of a cul-de-sac, have mercy. I don't know why that came out, but it did. And I'm going to tell you this, this is the weirdest thing ever. That man who was beat red, losing his mind, about to kill me, I thought I was going to get beat up worse than I've ever gotten beat up before. He stops and he looks at me and he goes, get in your car. Follow me. And this isn't the sort of follow me that Jesus gave his disciples. This is like, I'm going to take you somewhere and, and hurt you really bad. But I did it. I don't know why I did it, but I did it. So I get in my car, and I get behind his car, and I'm shaking. I'm trembling. Adrenaline is coursing through my veins. I don't know where we're going or what we're doing. So I get, we eventually show up to a house, and he pulls his car into a driveway. And at this house, there's two little kids playing in the front yard. And I get out of my car, and I'm standing there, and he goes, wait here. And I'm waiting there, and the kids go, Dad, who is that? He goes, don't ask questions. And he's inside for a few minutes, and then he comes out with a bucket of suds and a rag, and he goes, get to work. And I detailed this entire car for an hour and a half. I, I washed things in this car that weren't even dirty. Like, I'm just freaking out. I'm thinking, you're going to go to jail. You're going go to you're gonna, you're gonna get fired. You're going to end up like, Danielle's going to divorce you. You're going to end up... You're going to be one of those people on the street. It's going to happen. You're going to be that guy all because of this. And I'm praying, God, help me. God, what have I been doing? And I'm going through all of it. God, where, where was I? And I cleaned it, and I did it perfect. And then eventually he came out, and he looked at the car, and he goes, okay. Looks good. Let's talk. And he said, what happened? I said, I don't know. It just snapped. I just... I did something, and I, I wish I could undo it, but I can't, and I realize I need to fix this. And he looks at me, and he goes, you got to figure this out. He didn't say anything about God. He didn't say anything about Jesus Christ. He didn't say anything about forgiveness, but I knew in my mind, as clear as day, what he was saying to me and what I was hearing was where, where I had been living, what I had been living on, what I had been living through up to that moment in my life had been autopilot. My way or the highway. Not God's way. I had been getting sloppy with God's word. And because I had been getting sloppy and making a mess, I made a big mess. And most of us are never going to make a big mess like that. Okay? Most of us are never going to do it. But we'll make a lot of small messes along the way that we're going to do our best to cover over. And just make sure things kind of look okay. But the reality is, it's being held together by band-aids and glue. And what God wants for us is for things to not be held together that way, but be held together by his word that will change our lives. That will help us not live sloppily anymore. And insanely anymore. 
So I ask you again, where is the Bible in your life? If Josiah teaches us anything, he teaches us that recognition, recognition of our current state is everything. And sometimes we have to stop and say the truth. I'm a mess. The Bible is missing. I need to get back to square one. And so I've got three questions to close that I think if you just spend some time thinking about these, it might change something, and I think it will change everything. First question, what do I want for my life? What do you want for your life? What do you want to want for your life? Just imagine this. If the miracle happened today, what would your life look like? How would you know it happened? What do you want for your life? Second question, am I living by default or by design? I talked about this a few weeks ago, and this idea of default or design is we all have the capability of just living in the way where we're just coasting along. Nobody's telling us what to do. We're not listening to anybody but the thoughts that kind of course through our brains. I can have what I want when I want it. I can do what I want when I want to do it. When I think something, it's right. When I say something, it's okay. And that's called autopilot. But what we see in the Bible, actually I believe default is the flesh, design is the spirit. What we see in the Bible is God has given us a design for living that is hard to do at first. But actually when we begin to live in that abundant life and things begin to work and we begin to realize this is just what humans were meant to do. This is how God meant for humanity to function. We notice it works and it's not that hard to do. It's not that hard to do when it works. Do you believe what Jesus believed? I say this a lot, but sometimes we like to say, I believe that Jesus died on the cross. And that's, that's good enough. But we don't actually believe the things he taught. And that's just incongruent to me. You need both. You need to believe in the ideas that he preached and the ideas that the Bible promotes. He did. He did. Are you living by default or by design? And the last question is, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Francis Chan has this great quote quote that he said, uh, people love to listen to the Sunday morning message and and ask the question, how can I apply this to my life without screwing up my life? How can I apply this to my life in a way where I can still kind of function normally without having to risk my neck? But what I want to say is maybe your lives are already screwed up. And screwing it up in the way of listening to God might be the best screw up that you could ever do like getting in a cold shower. So it's January 1, 2023, the day of resolutions and plans for the future. Maybe today's the day where you get to say, I'm going to do something different. 